Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to Prevention 365 Podcast. Prevention is every day and every way. This is your host, Carol Almeida, and this is the 39th episode of Prevention 365 from the from its beginning last year. And this is a special episode because this will be the season finale of Prevention 365. We will cap the first season of the podcast series. And what is more fitting to close the season of Prevention 365 than to have a sit-down conversation with no less than ADAPS Prevention Director, Jeannie Shimatsu. And for our topic, it will be how does ADAP practice prevention through the years? Welcome, Jeannie. Hi, Carol. Thank you so much for inviting me to be the guest. Yes. I'm excited. We're so honored, Jeannie. So, and uh, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. We know how busy you are, but thank you for taking the time. So, we'll walk through the past, the present, and the future. So, I'd like more to touch on the past. So, Jeannie, you have really been considered as the face of prevention here at the Asian American Drug Abuse Program, or what we popularly know as uh, ADAP. Could you walk us through the uh, evolution of prevention as a strategy to address the issue of substance use, misuse, and abuse? Well, this is really timely because ADAP is experiencing a monumental year. This is our 50th anniversary. Now, let me make this clear. I am not, I have not been with ADAP for 50 years, but I have been with ADAP clearly for over 30. Um, yeah, over, clearly over 30. Uh, so I have uh, had the experience of seeing changes over the decades, um, transitions that were both programmatic and um, world conditions, you know, conditions of, of, of what was happening in, in our lives. And so um, prevention definitely had to find its way and it had to adjust and transition over the decades. I joined ADAP in the 1980s, in the mid 1980s. And ADAP at that time, the entire agency fit in one building, which is what the current uh, therapeutic community or the TC is at on 5318 Crenshaw. And um, it's funny, I was just talking with our executive director, our, our CEO, uh, Dean Nakanishi, and actually we were talking about this, like, do you remember when <laughs> your office was there, when I was doing that? And yeah, prevention in the early days was very grassroots. We were about getting out into the schools, 
uh, after, a lot of after school programming, um, working with elementary, middle schools. Um, and much of that was either education based or alternative programming in, and, you know, basketball, sports, tutoring, coloring, um, social activity, social engagement. And then it, uh, it, we also started, uh, interestingly enough, through uh, Nancy Reagan's Just Say No, and I know there's a lot of controversy around that because Just Say No in and of itself didn't work. But what it did start, if I had to look at Silver Lining, is it brought together um, community groups to ADAP, with ADAP to start um, an adult coalition, which is GDAP. And our foundation, um, in the Gardena community has so many layers because the in the 70s, that's uh, when ADAP found its roots and through activism became an agency. It became mm -hmm. ADAP. It, it, this is where we started providing treatment services. And years later, in several years later, prevention became part of that program, part of the uh, a critical piece. But over the decades, yes, a lot of our prevention work was youth-based, uh, but engaging adult coalitions as sponsors of our youth group, which uh, I think that actually started before me in 1983, 82 or 83, uh, with the high school task force. Um, and mm -hmm. I joined in 86. But in those years, uh, the idea was to engage high school uh, students as peer educators. So they were trained on substance abuse um, curriculum and they went into the schools and they uh, provided educational sessions to elementary school kids. And part of this was to serve as mentors to them so that the elementary school uh, students could see that these were high school students that were doing things that were changing the community. And by reaching out as educators, that was part of the role, early role modeling. Um, hold on. It's interesting because the South Bay in particular, Gardena, that's where, um, in the 60s and 70s, the late 60s and early 70s, when a rash of overdoses um, were taking place by young Asian um, youth, and they were open, uh, they were overdoping, overdosing on reds, which are barbiturates, and a good number of them were women. And so, what's interesting about that? in that tragedy is that you have to go through tragedy to find solutions sometimes. And what wasn't happening was there were no services for Asian and Pacific Islanders at that time. And we recognize, and we clearly recognize that in all communities of color, services have, services have to be relatable. And um, so that's partly why Gardena has a special place because the roots, many the roots started there, but when we look at the prevention side, those roots also came out of the same need because substance abuse issues were happening. Um, we're continuing in the trend of what was happening in the 80s, and it was the El Camino Lions, um, inspired by the uh, town hall 
from Nancy through Nancy Reagan that had them reach out to ADAP to say, is there some way we could work together to reach out and work with high school students in our city? Mm-hmm. And with that partnership, GDAP was born and uh, organizers at that time, prevention specialists reached reached out to Gardena High School and we started our first youth program there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So would you say, Jeannie, that uh, that youth-based organizing actually uh, came or originated or was initiated by would say would say adults? Well, I think that I think when you ask, when you talk about the strategies, community organizing is an old strategy for millennia. It just wasn't called that. Mm-hmm. But everything comes out of the community. And in this case, the need was seen that youth needed specific attention around social support, other support so that it could serve as an alternative to substance use. And the core, when we look at the core of everything, even to this day, it really goes back to communities, community gatherings through coalitions. There really needs to be a strong representation by youth because there needs to be a foundational development that's going to spurn on and pass on through generations. Adults know that. Youth know that. Yeah. Once yeah. they're engaged, especially. Yeah, you mentioned about community town hall way back uh, in the past, right? Community town hall. And we still use that, you know, as a, you would say, as a strategy uh, in order to uh, outreach and in order as a forum to inform and educate, right? You know, so, uh, so there. It's an age-old, I would say, age-old tactic, mm-hmm. strategy, but it still is effective. So community, we look at the community uh, as the focal point or as the base of our organizing. Would you yeah. agree with that statement, too? I fully agree with I fully agree with that, that without the community, um, we would have no progress. Because they are to the true, they are the true experts of where they live, and I think our role is to serve as linkages, a liaison, as liaisons and linkages um, with the areas of expertise we do know when it comes to certain information, and we come together as partners to build on our strengths to address what they see as conditions to change, social, environmental. Um, economic. These conditions all contribute to the area of which um, we battle, which is youth um, access and youth use of substances. And so um, our flagship is about that type of prevention. How do we engage communities about these issues that are affecting them in ways that will change the environment to improve wellness, to improve safety, to improve conditions so people can live in a in place, can live in a condition that is much better for the lives of themselves, their families, and 
neighborhoods and communities. I think that's something everyone strives for. Yes. It's not equal, but things that think that that's what we strive for in our lives. Yeah. You know, another point that I'm curious about, Jeannie, is, uh, you know, in, in, in the development, in the development of the discipline, which is community organizing, in the development of the strategy of community organizing as a strategy, how does, could you walk us through like the development of it as a, as a discipline, as a strategy, you know? I mean, how do, how do, how did we prepare our core? How did we prepare our advocates, our staff, our communities for community organizing? That's a great question. And if I had to look at the basic steps or cores that we take, that we take um, with our prevention unit, it has to do with some critical pieces, education, information, mobilization, um, action, and action meaning advocacy, whether the campaign is policy-based, media-based, uh, or other, uh, it's about changing conditions in schools, neighborhoods, homes, uh, parks, public places, the entire community. So uh, these pieces all come together and they don't necessarily work just by themselves. And I think one of those misnomers is, well, let's just educate them and that answers all the questions. Education is a critical piece, but understand that it is a piece to the entire process. Education provides that foundation of understanding of the situation. It connects the dots to what is the issue? Why is that an issue? What is it that we could do? How does it affect you personally? What are you committed to do? How can we bring you and others that are feeling the same way together um, in a coalition or in other gathering? How do we come together? Because numbers, people power, people, it's about people power, people coming together because this is a critical issue. And then joining together with with that brain set and figuring out solutions that work because they know their community and they know what needs to change. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when we look at policy, people, people back off because they think, oh, it has to be um, a formal municipal policy. Oftentimes those are the best when it does come to prevention, but sometimes the most basic policy, if we use that word loosely, starts in the home. Mm -hmm. And that means taking a look at what's happening in your own home that can make your home a safer place for you and your children or the generations within your family when it comes to things like alcohol. Where do you put it? How do you secure it? Prescription drugs. Um, don't get into grandma's pills. You know, um, how do you secure these things so that young people as young as toddlers, children don't have access and have accidental overdoses or poisonings. So there's, there's different ways to look at what campaigns are, but campaigns can happen in the home, mm -hmm. in the school, in the neighborhood, 
in our parks, um, in our cities. And Carol, you know, you are the expert of policy advocacy. And the one thing we both agree and in our field, we agree that policy is one of the most successful pieces because it addresses prevention for an entire, you know, an entire swath of, of area and people. Yeah, yeah. So Jeannie, if I may synthesize, if I may provide synthesis, it's more of, like I say, collecting information, gathering knowledge, not just for knowledge's sake, mm-hmm. or not just to be informed and to be educated about the issue. But we use this body of knowledge in order for us to be motivated to act so that we can bring about change for the better. Yes, yes, definitely. And one of the frameworks, and I just blanked out, Carol, the the strategic prevention framework is a very loose framework that uh, has been adopted by by the county, well, technically uh, uh, nationwide, Mm-hmm. But is the, the strategic prevention framework also gives this basic these this basic structure, which is assessment, capacity building, planning, implementation, and evaluation. In many ways, if you look at it, that could be applied to almost any area of our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Assess, understand what's really happening by gathering that data or that information. Um, take that information and help that to plan what it is you need to do to make those changes, to establish what the issues are. And the capacity building is what is it that you need? Who are your partners with that? And implementation is taking that into action. And action is the big piece. You were talking about that. Um, yeah. Education and information leads needs to lead to action. Otherwise, it stays in its own place and it just, you know, it, it dissipates. Yeah. It has to be associated with a movement and action, a change. Yes, change. It's all about movement, movement towards change, change for the better. Right, Jeannie? Yeah. So, uh, so I, I would like to emphasize that mantra. Do you need that knowledge to action to change? Yes. Knowledge to action to change. That is supposed to be the mantra for prevention. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking a question back to you or asking you to share, you have been a a pivotal, uh, a pivotal, pivotal person, a pivotal person actor in this action of policy advocacy. If you had to think back, Carol, which policy piece have you worked on did you feel had the most impact? The policy, I would say, would be uh, tobacco, in tobacco prevention and control, particularly the policy with the overarching goal of preventing youth access to tobacco 
products. And How have you seen the changes? Like what, what did you, what were some of the concrete changes you saw coming out of some of the policy actions? Yes, we do have, I mean, you know it, Jeannie, that we go through the phases and we consciously measure outcomes. You know, we consciously measure outcomes. We have instruments, you know, we have methods like, uh, you know, the young adult purchase survey or then the youth purchase survey. We have pre-policy before the ordinance on tobacco retail licensing uh, ordinances passed to post-policy adoption. And we see here, you know, the, the, the outcomes, you know, of, uh, of the willingness in terms of the willingness of retailers to sell to, to youth. You know, before the policy, before the ordinance is passed, you know, we would go out there undercover operations and we have their employers or not employers, but retailers just not being conscious of, you know, of uh, the age of purchase of youth, you know, but with after the ordinance is passed, after the ordinance is passed, we go out again with our undercover youth and we find out that, you know, there is, you know, already that consciousness ingrained, you know, there is already that uh, ingrained consciousness in the retailers that there is already an ordinance and we have to, you know, and we have to uh, follow and comply with this ordinance. And then you can see when they start asking about age, when they start asking, and they themselves, they, they also do some education piece to, to our undercover youth, say, don't you know that this is now the age of uh, legal purchase of uh, tobacco products, you know? And- Oh, sorry, go ahead, Carol. Yes, and I think that's how concrete I can go, you know? That's so far our experience. So, I mean, we have, you know, we have, we are evidence-based, you know, and we know when we say success, we know how to measure success in terms of how close we are to achieving our goal, which is to protect our youth from the harmful consequences of substances like tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, prescription drugs, and other illegal drugs. You know, it's interesting, Carol, when you shared about that. I think when people think of the the sting operations, they think, well, that's such a setup. Um, you know, and it is a method. It's a method, a legitimate method to figure out what's really happening mm-hmm. you know, on conditions of what youth are seeing. And what's interesting outside of that is when we have had conversations with merchants afterwards, because they do get to know who we are at some point. And when we have that conversation, it's interesting because the majority of them do not want to sell. They know. They may not have known the details. So I think some of the information and education shared with them does help to, uh, the knowledge helps to 
uh, encourage them to maintain what they're doing, which is not to sell. But now they understand why, and they understand the other conditions around that, what that has to do with health and brain development and very critical issues, particularly affecting youth, adolescents, youth and adolescents. So I, I feel like our work, when we talk about some of the core practices that have led to change is our role is to help connect the dots. I know that's a very basic statement, but oftentimes we don't take the time to think about what's happening in our lives or what's happening in the conditions around us that could lead to why someone is using. And um, there's this misnomer that the more information we give about the drug itself will prevent use. Actually, it does not. I think it has to be a combination of helping whether it's youth, young adults, even adults, have them understand the reason behind the youth use. So the question might be, yes, now you understand what alcohol may do, but what is the reason why you might have started using in the first place? Mm-hmm. What are some of the conditions in your life that have contributed to using, to trying, to experimenting? You know, and I think initially some people might say, well, it was just there. I was curious. But when you have them dig deeper for those, especially for those who have continued actively using, there's other reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why much of our efforts with youth work and coalition work has to do with helping to dig deeper so that people connect the dots personally. They, then they connect the dots. Oh, my gosh, I didn't realize that was in, happening in my own family. Or that's the reason why so-and-so might have started. So it actually helps from a perspective of compassion, too. Because we all live, life is not easy. Life is not easy. So these choices we make, um, particularly during, during times of stress, can often lead to things that will take us off our rails. And what I mean by that is it could be substance abuse, it could be cutting, it could be uh, depression, which leads to other, you know, other forms of self-harm. And so when we help people to understand the what's and the why's, mm-hmm. and then we connect them to support, then that becomes part of what preventionists do is we help that. We help the process to services, to self-acknowledgement, self-understanding, to the understanding that you're ultimately your decisions are your responsibility, but there's a net, a safety net to help you if you need that. And I think this world, especially nowadays, really needs a lot more compassion and support. Um, yes, yes. Yes. It's multidimensional, Jeannie. Yes, it is. Yes. Like, it can start with just uh, the issue of prescription drugs mm-hmm. or even youth access to tobacco products, but it can open the doors to other social issues like, you know, um, mental, mental health issues, you know, or shall we say, or even discovery of new diseases, new ailments. Like, for example, we are in a period of pandemic, Yes. but it's not just COVID-19. 
that is the issue with with the vaping, you know. Uh, but other, you know, other illnesses like Evali. I don't know if you've uh, if uh, we've taken this up in one of our in one of our discussions. You know, Evali that uh, not only COVID but young young people are affected and are afflicted with e-valley. This is connected directly to the use of vaping devices. And it's a long disease, much like COVID, you know. So it is multidimensional. And for us really to narrow it down just to, you know, substance use and abuse, you're right. I mean, we have to look at it from a comprehensive, from a comprehensive uh, mindset you know it's a public health it's a public health issue and when it comes to public health i think it has to be relatable especially young people they're not really going to think about or even care about health unless there's something absolutely immediate you know Mm -hmm. um and that i think that applies with adults as well as unless your body you turn your body inside out and you can take a look at your lungs or your liver or other things happening, it doesn't, uh, the switch doesn't turn on until you're forced to, t- you're forced to deal with that health issue. So oftentimes when it comes to what we do in our field, it really goes back to what is currently important for you? What is it? What are the decisions uh, that you want to make for your life that you have as your life goals? And will making that choice of you getting loaded at a party or driving um, while high, is that going to derail your plans? Like, have you thought about that, connecting the dots to that behavior, to that action, to that outcome? Yeah, um, I think there's a challenge to it, Jeannie. Uh, you, we know it, you know, like uh, when we touch on brain development, you know, <laughs> and substance use, yes. I mean, at the core of our prevention effort, is you know the is imparting imparting especially to the young people mm-hmm. and to everyone i mean that uh, the impact of substance use on brain development and brain development does not uh, stop uh brain development continues even uh up to the age of 26 yeah. years you know and on top of that we would say that at the early stage of development of the brain or referring to the brain of teenage, of teenagers, of teenage, of, of young people, the brain is wired, according to research, the brain is wired that it is still not sensitive to what we call consequences of action. Oh, no, no. Yeah, so uh, so that presents as a challenge to us, right? When we is go it, into information uh, and education, yeah. Or it really is about incentivizing their life, and I'm not talking incentivizing that you got a gift card to In and Out, which might be nice for that moment, but incentivizing their life. Like, what is it that you really want to do? Did you, do you, are you really gunning to be a basketball player, a professional player? Are you interested in um, 
owning your own business, you know, it, it, going to school, getting a job, what is it that you really want? And when we can help young people incentivize their own life so that they see that there's some direction and that it's actually planning out, that there's activities uh, that they're introduced that helps lead them to these positive opportunities, a chance to work with someone, a chance to do a project where they get out into the community and they see things that are out of the norm. They get to experience what other people are going through and there's some level of relatability or just something as basic as, have you had a chance to voice your own opinion? Mm-hmm. You have your chance to talk about what's important to you and feel like you've been heard and acknowledged. It sounds like such a basic thing, but it's so important. I mean, if it wasn't so big, if it wasn't true, we wouldn't have these things called influencers. Mm -hmm. And those are those, the movers and shakers on social media. So the idea of being valued and heard has transitioned in different ways. But I think when it comes to our youth populations, everyone needs that. Everyone needs that level of acknowledgement and support so that they could move and find that area of confidence to discover who they are and become who they want to be. But they need that opportunity. Yes. So, Ginny, we can now segue to to the next question. Sure. Uh, so now let's look at the present and let's focus on the present. What are the core practices that illustrate or demonstrate our work in prevention? Well, I think we did partially talk about that, you know, the continuation, the development of coalitions, policies that we have passed, um, community-based policies that where we've engaged with coalitions. I think those strategies have proven to be successful and um, continue to do so. Uh, I would say that when you look at what's happening now, um, much of it was as you brought up earlier about COVID, um, for prevention, we had to pivot with that as well. Um, many of Much of our work prior to COVID was boots on ground, engaging in the community. Um, and for almost a good two years, we were stripped of that opportunity because of COVID. And I would say, and I would, I say this with joy and I say this with a little bit of pride because it came out of community prevention. Uh, We pivoted very well when it came to social media and not everybody had that niche. We had Mm -hmm. to learn. It was um, it was definitely a learning curve, but a couple things came out of it. I would say if we could highlight two, if I could highlight two, one is Hot Topic Tuesday. One of our clever organizers coined that And that has now become institutionalized with our team where uh, educational workshops are provided every or nearly every Tuesday with varying topics, guest speakers, activities um, to highlight 
substance abuse, but from the perspective of what is happening with current conditions in our lives. Mm -hmm. And so that has been very effective and that continues to this day. And the other thing is what we're doing now, podcasting. And as you shared earlier, we're in our nerd our 39th, which is really, I'm surprised because I was trying to calculate how many have we done? Uh, 39, considering we started about a year ago, yeah. we were brand new to it, green feet, green mic, green everything. And, you know, we had guidance from uh, Jackie, who's our consultant, and she gave us ideas on how to podcast. And the rest of that, uh, I think that was taken on with eagerness by the community prevention team, then with ADAP's admin, um, and now is spreading to other units within our ADAP uh, family, our Ohana. So podcasting became our way of reaching out to many people about varying issues from recovery, uh, stories of recovery, understanding substance abuse from personal testimony, um, understanding prevention from things like appreciating love, stories from the homeland, experiences being um, multi-ethnic, um, and you know, varying topics all in between. So I would say if you talked about what is happening currently, I would say that was one of our successes during this period of pandemic. And now that we've merged, there's a hybrid of in-person um, um, activities where we're reaching out, we're continuing to survey, educate, um, and promote. Um, prevention is back on track. I do have to say though, and I wanna give a shout out to uh, both our, in our prevention youth, uh, in our prevention team, the HIP team, and IYCC that continue to provide direct services to clients, to the unhoused populations. Uh, they never stopped. They were boots on ground through the entire period of COVID. So as essential workers, um, our hats have to be, our hats go off to them and we wanna acknowledge HIP and IYCC for that. So that is part of who we are as prevention and the umbrella of dynamics and of program reach is really extensive. So uh, I'd say in a nutshell, that's what we are now. Mm -hmm. And when you say HIP team, that will be the health intervention program. Uh, uh, program yes. Know? And they, uh, they, it's mostly focused on what call harm reduction strategies? Harm reduction, which includes needle exchange. It includes HIV. It includes other aspects related to the conditions around use and to reduce use through harm reduction strategies. It also includes, uh, a piece of it including, includes housing for those who are experiencing homelessness. Yeah. Uh, so it, it has its umbrella of services and a definite need for those who are on the streets. And it, we really have to respect that uh, that situation has not improved, if anything, and not by the work, but by the condition of COVID. Um, it has made 
the 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 uh, living conditions much harder. Yeah. So um, hats off to our um, outreach um, health educator. Teachers, yes. And uh, on the other hand, uh, IYCC is in the Chinese Youth Community Center. And uh, what is unique about this program is that they they cater or they provide services to what we call the uh, marginalized uh, sectors, especially what we term as the hard to reach uh, uh, sector brought about by social issues like uh, illegal immigration, English proficiency. Is that correct, Ginny? Well, so, so IYCC specifically targets the Southeast Asian community of the South Bay. So uh, their outreach goes to the Khmer population as well as the Vietnamese population. And so it, insert, it, it supports um, um, needs that include uh, job training, job placement or linkages to uh, food issues, um, making sure that they're provided with the type of needs that uh, service the basics, you know, housing, food, jobs. Uh, and it's interesting because coming out of conditions of war, and it may be a generation or two that this has happened, the impact of uh, generational trauma where um, they've had to escape with their lives. They've lost family members starting over. Uh, the, there are so many layers to that that still exist even with uh, second generation and, oncoming, and incoming third generation, but primarily it's the 1.5 to two second generation that are helping to, up to, helping to lift their communities now. Um, working with, uh, as you said, language, uh, service access uh, that is ethnically supported. And so um, there's so many issues layered with that. And when we talk about substance abuse, there are, there are influences just within that experience that contribute to um, use, various use. And so uh, IYCC does a great job reaching to the, under, uh, the underserved pockets to make sure that they are supported. Yeah, yeah. well said, Jeannie. And uh, I would say well synthesized. That would really uh, show our audience how prevention is actually morphed into something bigger and has really expanded to, uh, to address uh, the multi-dimensional social issues, not just substance use and, uh, and abuse. Ginny, I'm curious about, and uh, I would like to ask you your analysis and your perspective about this, going back to the past and going back to how prevention has, uh, has evolved. You know, you mentioned very strongly and emphatically uh, it's school-based, you know, it's school-based, uh, youth-based. So we find our youth in school and then we organize, we nurture them and we cultivate relationships. But it would seem like the present, especially now that we're coming uh, 
post surge, no, post surge, and schools are just reopening. We're faced with the challenge of uh, recruitment and much more retention. So, I mean, honestly speaking, our organizers are saying that, uh, you know, our youths have graduated and uh, we're faced now with the challenge of how do we bring in the youth so, so much so that we can at least uh, equal the experience we've had in the early days of uh, prevention work. I think we could learn from the past of some examples of what worked then. But I think the key thing is to pivot and adjust to what is happening now. Because um, it's one thing to do the glory days. Yeah. Um, and it's another thing to, to capitalize on the certain aspects that were successful that could be applied now. And so some of those things that, I th particularly because of COVID, it has created a gap, a chasm in social engagement. I think the youth want it, they crave it, they miss it. Some youth don't know that it's, mm -hmm. it's two years is a long time. Yeah. And it's a sacrifice for many who uh, looked forward to these traditions such as graduation or parties or, you know, just the normal social things that Carol, you and I did and the organizers did mm -hmm. when they were younger um, were denied to this generation. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say that it, the extra steps would be building trust. Honestly, I think that's going to, we might have, we have to step a few, we have to take a few steps back. That's just that reality is that we can't just come in and expect that we can recruit like, like we used to, and the, the youth are going to flood back. Like we're going to have to approach it a little differently. And part of that would be engaging in some conversation about it finding out what they're willing to do. Um, also finding out, um, engaging in a relationship. So at least some of them might be willing to come out and try it out. Also working, um, now this also, this these strategies we've done before, but maybe with a different hand, a different attitude and a slightly different approach and how we message it. But working with, uh, collectively with uh, key school, um, leaders, uh, faculty, administrators, but um, also finding the, the, the young leaders themselves, mm -hmm. getting the engaging with them to find out what is it that you think you, what is it that you've been hearing and what would you recommend? And I think starting from ground level and taking that humble approach of, we have to take the extra steps and start over and do that footwork. I think that's the only way to gain ground again, because that trust will create a group and will grow the group because then they know that the dedication is about them. It's for them, it's for their development, but it's for their um, ownership. Yes. So there are so, several steps, but I, I, yeah, I think we have to take a couple steps back to move forward. Yes. One the step backward will can make two steps forward. I think it's allowing for the pause to listen. Yeah. 
and allowing the pause to take in and coming up with strategies that are tweaked to best fit what's happening now. Yeah, but but Jeannie, would you say that we do have to go back, right? We have to go back, immerse ourselves in yes. our communities, right? Yeah. And I think that's what's happening. And if, if, if anything, I would issue patience. Mm-hmm. Patience to allow the organic um, development of mm-hmm. coming together to allow for that trust to build, to provide and to incentivize in a way where they see it's worthwhile investing their time and energy to become part of this group. And I think we have some members that could be that are currently still engaged that could serve as part of that outreach. But I think a lot of that footwork will be to get back on campus. Yes, and also the realization that organizing is a painstaking effort. It's a painstaking effort, you know. And uh, it's not only patience, Jeannie, but persistence. Yes. Yes. Persistence, yeah. Persistence, patience, persistence. Persistence, yeah. It's a painstaking effort, yeah. A lot of P's, painstaking, persistent. <laughs> yeah. Annie, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the third would be looking at the future, Jeannie. So being at the helm, I would say, being at the helm of uh, the prevention program at ADAP. What do you see? are the directions I think in the right future? Now, I think right now I'm still absorbing some of the changes that or expectations from the role I have as director. Um, and so I'm always allowing for the pause to listen. But there are a few things that I would like to see moving forward that I think are not too different from what I did as a coordinator, but from a more expanded and uh, 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 sorry, from a more expanded perspective and approach. And one is to promote internal leadership development. I think there's this expectation that, or or understanding that a person can be a leader if they have the title. Well, I need to be the coordinator. I need to be the director. Uh, Honestly, a title is a title. Mm -hmm. I think what creates the leader is what you bring to your position and there's leadership at every level. And the idea is to prepare everyone for their current position, but their next step. And the leadership is about developing the confidence, not just in the field and as a role in this case as organizer or outreach educator or counselor, but how do you how do you build your skills and your confidence to take it to that next level? It shouldn't be dedicated just to a person with a title. It's about how you do this for yourself, regardless of your title. So that's one area that I want to see progress. Mm-hmm. Um, the other area would be. Um, Yeah, we talked about this earlier about the pulse of the community. I really feel like with COVID and 
also with conditions that are happening in politics today that are affecting our daily lives. I mean, the Supreme Court decision mm -hmm. to over to overturn mm -hmm. Roe versus Wade has is a long battle. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that we're looking at not just the the overturning of something that I had thought was constitutional and I still believe is that, you know, the right for a woman to decide for themselves. But it's, I think there's such a focus on abortion and what's the undercurrent of that when we talk about connecting the adults is really about, it has to do with women's, uh, a woman's right, women's health, yeah. uh, reproductive health, overall health. All of these things are being compromised now. Mm -hmm. especially for women of color, especially by women that are economically disadvantaged. So all the more, and how does this tie, I tie into what we do, all the more our generation, all the more reason why we have to invest even more in our generation of young girls and women, because they're going to have to refight a battle for themselves, for their lives. Yeah, as they said, the struggle continues. The struggle yeah. never ended. The struggle yeah. continues. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and we go back again to uh, you know, it's it's not just substance use abuse. It's not just abortion rights. You know, but the issue is multidimensional. Yes, it's multidimensional, and uh, and I think it was that. Terry Reynolds, our HIP uh, coordinator, HIP team coordinator, that I also uh, guested to talk about homelessness. And that was last year in our in one of our episodes. And she says that oftentimes uh, homelessness is equated with, uh, you know, um, with substance use, abuse, as well as mental health issues. And she proceeded to say that those are myths. Yes. Those are myths. Homelessness affects different social backgrounds, different classes. It's multidimensional. Yes. So it's the same, you know, we have to, it's not just, you know, getting involved with substance use, but we also have to get involved with Roe versus Wade, with women's reproductive rights, you know, with the uh, with, uh, public health issues, yes. public health issues. Okay. So, um, uh, Jeannie, one last, uh, I would say one last question. So can you coin an aspirational goal? At this point. I would say, you know, off the top of my head, it would be do what is right and do it with a dedicated heart 
because it's about what we can give and what we could do, not only for ourselves, but to change the life of others. Well said, Jeannie, well said. And that I think is the essence of, of uh, social change, you know. It's changing the lives of people for the better. Sorry, of course that happens. Thank you so much, Jeannie. Thank you, Carol. This was an interesting conversation. I appreciate that. Yes, and uh, this is a teachable, shall we say, an educational piece, actually. Uh, we know that we have, uh, shall we say, retreats, you know, staff retreats, staff, uh, uh, shall we say, staff training. And uh, I think I would recommend this episode to be, to be part of staff retreat and staff training. You know? So this will, you know, kind of provide an overview this will provide an inspiration and a motivation. Remember, knowledge, information, education, I mean, they just don't matter, not unless we put them into, into action. action. Yes. Because it is only in putting them into action that we can bring about change. And in putting them into action, there is definitely a need for motivation. And this episode, the season finale of Prevention 365 can bring about motivation for a lot of people, for a lot of us. Thank you so much, Jeannie. Carol, thank you. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And so we bring to, uh, to a close momentarily. And what I mean to a close, it's the season finale of Prevention 365. So stay tuned. We'll be back with bigger, better, more inspiring stories of human struggles human connectivity, and most of all, the urge, the desire to change for the better. So to all of our listeners, to our audience, on the Believe Network, Apple, Spotify, an ADAP YouTube channel. It is bye for now from the Prevention 365 podcast team. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.